Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Larry Chapp as we discuss some very weighty things in the church brought to mind by a very recent report on the Cardinal McCarrick scandal. So we're going to dive into all that. But Dr. Chapp, before we do that, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Hey, thank you very much, Evan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. No, I'm very excited to have you. I, I read a recent article of yours that I simply found to be the most incisive analysis of where we find ourselves in the church today. Um, to my listeners, if you want to check this out, I've linked it in the show notes. It is from Dr. Chap's personal blog, Gaudium at Space 2222.com. And the, the blog post is from November 11th, 2020. Uh, and it is titled The McCarrick Report and the De Facto Atheism of the Church. So we'll get to all that and to uh, why I think it is the most incisive analysis of our current moment that I think I've read to date. But before that, let me just read your bio here for my listeners, Dr. Chap, and then we'll, we'll sure, be off to the races. Dr. Chap, Dr. Larry Chap, is a retired professor of theology and the co-owner and manager of the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm near Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania. Dr. Chap received his doctorate in Catholic Systematic Theology at Fordham University in 1994 with a specialization in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Dr. Chap taught for 20 years at DeSales University near Allentown, Pennsylvania. He is married to Carmina Magnuson Chap, who also has a doctorate in theology and who runs the online theology program for St. Joseph's College in Maine. So, Dr. Chap, it says you're, you're living in Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania right now. The most yes. important question, and this is a pass-fail, there is a correct answer. Uh, since, you're, <laughs> since you're a Pennsylvanian, Eagles or Steelers? Well, uh, I hate to disappoint you. Actually, I am originally from Nebraska, oh, so okay. it's go big. It's it's go big red, even though they're really horrible right now. <laughs> yeah, that's. But fair. actually, my wife is a Jersey girl, so we're kind of Giants fans. Hate to say it. Oh boy, well that's definitely the wrong answer then. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I failed. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an Eagles fan. I actually was born outside of Philadelphia and uh, have a lot of family roots in the area. I'm I'm no longer there. I'm now in Colorado, but uh, but I watch. The Eagles, most days, sometimes it's too frustrating to watch them, <laughs> especially this yeah, season. But yeah. um, anyway, welcome to the show. I'd love to ask you a little bit before we dive into our topic for today. I'd love to ask you about the Catholic Worker Movement and your involvement sure. in that. And especially what what is the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm uh, in which you find yourself uh, today and which you run with your wife? Well, let's start yeah with the simplest thing. I retired from DeSales in 2013, so we're, we're going on almost eight years now here. And Harvey's Lake is a little bit northwest of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, so it's northeast Pennsylvania. And very close and, to Scranton, I might add, for listeners uh, who are fans of the television show The Office. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I am actually calling you from Scranton right now. I'm staying in a little place uh, near it. We actually attend an Anglican Ordinariate Church up here in, in in Scranton, if your listeners know what an Anglican ordinary church, it's a Catholic church, um, but of uh, the Anglican rite. Now, uh, uh, let's just pause there because I didn't realize that. Uh, I'm a former Anglican, so I know all about the ordinariate. I uh, would love to attend an ordinary church if I found one close to me, uh, but there is none. Uh, so why do you find yourself at, a, at an ordinary church? Well, it kind of goes to with the whole Catholic worker thing. So it sort of dovetails together. As, as your listeners might know, Dorothy Day was actually pretty high church when it came to liturgy. And one of the things that I have, you know, I'm a basically a child of the Second Vatican Council. I'm 62 years old, but I don't remember the old Latin Mass. I just, I know the Novus Ordo. I know that basic Mass that came after Vatican II. And I have never been completely satisfied. It's a, I'm not one of these wackos. It's just a valid liturgy, and it can be done beautifully. But I just, it was never something that uh, moved my needle very much, other than the fact that Jesus is there. Uh, and so we realized there was an ordinariate parish near us, and we were in search of Good liturgy, and quite frankly, we were a little turned off by the traditional Latin Mass parish that was near us, uh, mainly because I don't know how blunt I can be. We got kind of tired of the Catholic Amish that were there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, th I, I, I think we, we, we can be very blunt. That's fine. Okay, yeah. It just seemed like a lot of the young people that were there was more of an ideology than real worship. And uh, it was it was part of this whole package that I, I just really don't want to go into. Uh, and so we, we discovered this ordinariate parish in Scranton. Father uh, Eric Bergman runs it. Uh, fantastic, fantastic parish. They actually are unusual as ordinary parishes go. They actually have their own church. They're not simply sharing a Novus, or a Novus Ordo church. They have their own church. And it's beautiful choir, beautiful. We went once and we fell in love with the liturgy and with the community. And we have been going here now for four years ever since. 
It's just an un- for your viewers that can make it to an ordinary liturgy. I would highly recommend it. Yeah, I would echo your recommendation there, Doctor Chap. Uh, I've been to one service of the ordinary in my life, and it was it was really wonderful. I mean, especially coming from an Anglican background, many of the prayers were familiar. Uh, it incorporates yes. a much of the Book of Common Prayer traditional Anglican liturgy uh, into um, the into the Latin rite, um, and it I mean it does so in a way yeah. that that. I mean, I think really sort of uh, obviously respects the traditions of the Anglican liturgy, uh, but obviously has the sacramental realities of the Catholic Church. And so it's a it's a wonderful thing. It is wonderful. And it certainly has Anglophone uh, tonalities to it. But one of the things that as a theologian now, one of the things that attracted me to it as well is that in my mind, the Anglican Ordinary Liturgy comes the closest to what I think the, the Council Fathers at the Second Vatican Council actually intended for the reform of the liturgy to look like. In other words, that it was going to look very similar to the old liturgy, but with allowances made for prayers in the vernacular, prayers out loud, a little more dialogue with the congregation, and so on. But worship ad orientum, communion kneeling at a rail on the tongue, and so on, with a lot of chant and that kind of thing. So to me, it was the best of both worlds. It was both preserving a very ancient liturgy, but also has what I would call upgrades that I think the council wanted. Well, there's so much there that we could unpack, and I'd love to maybe have you on another episode where we can do that. I mean, Talk just, about that. Yeah, yeah we're not really supposed to be talking <laughs> about that. Well, but but you've piqued my my curiosity. I mean, this is something that I also love to talk about, and I've spent a good deal of time thinking about, right? The fact that you describe yourself as a child of the Second Vatican Council, and you know, I've yes. met other people who call themselves children of the Second Vatican Council, and they don't mean what I think you meant by it, right? What you meant was you grew up in a church that was shaped by the Second Vatican Council. What other people think is that they have sort of adopted for themselves the mantle of whatever they define as the sort of spirit of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, And so it becomes their mission to sort of modernize and relativize the church and perhaps syncretize the church, et cetera. That's obviously not what you mean, but I really appreciate your point about what the what the council fathers intended for the liturgical reform to be. And I think that point is very frequently lost. I mean, um, (laughs) I think that the liturgical reforms that were embraced uh, quickly got out of hand. Um, because they were interpreted rather than in accordance with the spirit of the council, really with the spirit of the age, uh, and that is modernism. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, I mean, I was just reading uh, Joseph Ratzinger today before he was Pope Benedict on the council and its aftermath. And it's just really interesting to go back and read him. It was that, uh, what was it called? The Ratzinger Report came out in the 80s. And he made that classic distinction, which I still hold by that the documents of the council are the spirit of the council. And that what you had was a beautiful council that got co-opted and derailed by the, uh, you know, the cultural storm that came after uh, and a lot of nonsense and stupidity. So when I call myself a child of the Second Vatican Council, as a theologian, I mean that I have studied the documents and I love them. But as a human being, I mean that the post-conciliar silly season was inflicted upon me as a child. <laughs> yeah, and I and I remained a Catholic despite the clown masses and the pottery barn chalices and all that nonsense that we had to put up with. Yeah, that's exactly right. And your reference to a silly season, I think, comes from George Weigel, right? Isn't that his term for? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's Weigel's favorite phrase. <laughs> yeah, the silly season. Well, and, I, uh, I think this is important, though, for Catholics to understand, right? Because someone I was talking to the other day was describing people who are sort of on the road to Rome and maybe don't even recognize it, but they're drawn by beauty and aesthetics. And I said, I, I agree with you, but we have to be cautious about sort of overexalting aesthetics because we yes. have we have truth, but we don't we don't have a uh, an absolute claim on aesthetics. And I would suggest to you that many Anglican church services today are more beautiful outwardly than you know your standard sort of run-of-the-mill novus ordo mass and that doesn't say yeah. anything about the truth of what is said in either but i think we have to be what's careful the, about that the, yeah exactly what's the old joke for about episcopalian salvation by taste alone 
<laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's you know, obviously an insult and a bit of a caricature. And I have a lot of Episcopalian friends who are not happy with the direction of the Episcopal Church. Oh, but, no doubt. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I used I to be one telling of them, yeah. them, you know, ordinary it, ordinary it. But, you know, they, they want to stay in Canterbury. So, you know, that's their choice. But anyway, to bring it back to, to Dorothy Day then and Peter Moore and in the Catholic Worker Movement, as, uh, you know, I, after teaching as a theologian for 20 years, and I was pretty good at it. We, I taught primarily undergraduates, and I, uh, but they're just gradually, and both my wife and myself, at the same time, independently of, the other, of each other, there kept growing this deepening awareness that we needed to live a more radical Catholic existence, and we wanted to live a more agrarian and rural sort of, you know, back to the land kind of Catholic homesteader sort of existence. And that really fit in beautifully with the Catholic worker movement. And we knew a lot of Catholic workers, too. The co-owner of our farm, Father John Gribowicz in Brooklyn, knows a lot of the Catholic workers there and so forth. And it just sort of all dawned on us at the same time, now's the time. Now's the time to leave. I need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. I mean, let's face I was living a very comfortable professor's life. I had a nice house in the burbs on a little piece of land out in the woods, you know, and going on trips to Rome and Oxford and stuff like that and having a cushy schedule. And after, you know, going out to eat a lot and living the high life and just realizing, no, I can't go into a classroom and teach the radicality of the gospel while I'm living like a bourgeois suburbanite who's got everything in life handed to him. Yeah. You know, and so we just made that decision to do that. And, but also then as a theologian, what really strikes me about Dorothy Day and, and Peter Moore, and everybody knows Dorothy, nobody knows Peter Moore, the poor guy. But what, what strikes me is how, and I, man, this is my hobby horse, how deeply and profoundly Catholic Dorothy Day and Peter Moore and Moore, how orthodox they were. By today's standards, they are conservative. Uh, in terms of their obedience to the magisterium. But they took that orthodoxy and they radicalized it. So in other words, they're like radically orthodox. They take they take the faith to its roots and live it out radically. And I think that this is kind of what is needed. Going back to Ratzinger, I was reading uh, the Ratzinger report today, and he, and he said, we don't need new structures, we need saints. What every council needs to produce is holiness in its wake. You know, uh, Trent did it, and now we need Vatican II to do it. Yeah, that's such a such a powerful call to holiness. And it's hard to look at the post-Vatican II landscape and and see that happening. It's it's hard to see no. saints yeah. rising up after the Second Vatican Council. Now, we can talk about this later, too. I mean, I think there are reasons for optimism within the church today. I think there are many people, especially young people. I'm encouraged by a younger generation yes. of Catholics that yes. are rising up and, and really zealous about the faith, et cetera. Um, but it's hard, to, it's hard to look at the post-Vatican II landscape and see that happening. And in fact, we, we see, in many respects, the opposite coming to light. Uh, we just had the release of the McCarrick Report, which is about 400 pages detailing how this cardinal, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick of Washington, D.C., was able to rise to power despite the fact that he was a serial sexual abuser and harasser of, right. uh, of seminarians, of boys, of young men, etc. And this report has been nearly two, actually, I think over two years in the making uh, after these allegations finally became public. But these allegations weren't just simply, weren't new at the time that he fell. He, he, everyone knew about it. And you were in seminary at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland in the early 1980s. And right. by your telling, it was an open secret. So can you talk to me a little bit more about kind of what you saw from the church's sort of clerical sexual culture when you were there? Uh, yeah, let me back up, too. I mean, I was also in minor seminary. I went to an undergraduate seminary as well in northern Kentucky that no longer exists, and it was very conservative. So I was actually in the seminary for about six or seven years, right, almost up to the point of ordination when I decided to leave. So I, I understood seminary culture, late 70s into the mid-80s. And the, the backstory to the whole McCary thing is that it was a, a, a total open secret that the seminaries were riddled with a homosexual subculture. And it was extremely 
extremely difficult to be a sort of normal, sexually adjusted, heterosexual male and to really get along in that environment. It, it could be really quite disgusting being constantly propositioned, pinched, these sorts of things, and that nothing would be done about it. Uh, and that this is the thing. Nobody was ever held accountable. This is the great mystery of iniquity here. This deep post-Vatican II subculture of homosexuality began to arise in the church, and everybody just treated it like it was something normal. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're celibate, so we're going to attract a lot of gay types. So you just have to live with that, uh, roll with the punches and go with it. Uh, I wasn't okay with that. And it's one of the reasons why I, why I eventually left, because I began to realize all the grooming that was going on. Um, and even among many of the heterosexual guys, uh, sexual infidelities and so on, having affairs with parishioners. Uh, I don't want to, and I don't want to be overly dramatic or over, you know, over, exaggerate the problem because there are really so many good priests out there, and I feel sorry for them. And many of them are my former seminary classmates who are now priests, and I, I really feel deeply for them. But the facts are the facts. Post-Vatican II church got really lax spiritually, and when you get spiritually lax, the sexual faculty is one of the first things that gets corrupted. And if it isn't the sexual faculty, it's other sins of the flesh, booze, restaurants, why so many priests are overweight and you know drink too much, or trips and these sorts of things. And, and But the sexual domain is one of those. So that, that was the first thing. But then I was friends when my roommate was a seminarian for the Diocese of Metuchen, where McCarrick was bishop. And I remember distinctly 1982, sitting in my room with him one night, and we were just studying. And he said something about how he had been invited to McCarrick's beach house uh, at the Jersey Shore for the upcoming weekend. But he was uh, nervous because he turned the bishop down. Wow. And I said, why would you be ner nervous? What, what's the big deal? And so then he spilled the beans that he had gone there once before and that McCarrick was very gropey. He always got drunk. He would grope people. He would always groom a particular seminarian who he would then sleep with. Everybody sort of seemed to insinuate that McCarrick didn't do anything overtly sexual when he was in bed with a seminarian, but that he would like to be in bed with a seminarian, you know, half naked and so on. Uh, and, and so it was just this open, open secret that you had to do this with Uncle Ted, or you would not be a seminarian for very long from a touching. And, and this is one of the reasons why McCarrick got away with it, because he had power. And that's what makes it a particularly heinous form of sexual abuse, especially in the priesthood. He blackmailed people, essentially, and so they weren't willing to go on the record. They were not willing to go on the record. Furthermore, there are a couple of people that I know who were in the seminary who were propositioned by McCarrick, pinched by him, groped by him, and so on, who were not willing to go on the record uh, because they were embarrassed. I mean, as, as you might know, for example, let me put it this way. If I had gone naively to McCarrick's beach house and he had pinched me on the rear end or groped me inappropriately, I would have punched him in the face, and I would have told him to go to hell and leave me alone, and I would have immediately written a letter to somebody or complained to my rector or something I wouldn't have stood for. Now, it might have gotten me kicked out of the seminary or whatever, but I didn't care, and I wouldn't have cared is my point. So I think a lot of these seminarians who didn't do that, who didn't punch McCarrick in the face, who didn't say go to hell, who didn't write letters, feel guilty felt ashamed, felt a little bit complicit. Because after all, these are men who are not minors. They were grown men. Uh, grown men in an abusive situation where McCarrick abused his power. But nevertheless, grown men who should have gone on the record. So I, I, have, a certain, uh, I have a certain, let's put it this way, animosity towards those seminarians because we now know the sad record of McCarrick's rise through the episcopacy, and it could have all crashed and burned in the early 80s if my fellow seminarians had had the nerve and the courage to come forward, but they didn't. So it was this open secret that nobody could corroborate. It's like when I went on The O'Reilly Factor with Bill O'Reilly, because I was on his show quite a bit talking about the sex abuse stuff. And um, 
as I said in my blog, after one episode there, I was at Fox Studio and I got up to leave and he said to me that they were investigating a leading American cardinal for abu- you know, sexual abuse with adults and seminarians. And I said to him, I said, you mean McCarrick? And he just, like I said, leaned back in his chair, got a big grin on his face, said, have a nice, safe trip home, Dr. Chap. But then nothing ever came of it. So I'm assuming that they had heard at Fox News all the same rumors that people had whispered things and sent them little notes over the transom, but nobody was willing to go on, to the, on the record until very, very recently. And then it all came unraveled. And now everybody's wondering, well, how could this have been? Because of the culture of silence. That's why. Yeah, and I think that's one one place in which the report really, really seriously falls short. I mean, this McCarrick report, again, in 400 pages or so on the rise of Theodore McCarrick. But that's it is, a whitewash. It, it is, and it's primarily a, a report that describes the how, but not the why. In other words, it and you yes. talk you talk about this a little bit in your. Uh, in, I talk about the why. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you talk about the why, and you describe how the report is is basically inadequate because it talks about the how. It says you know this at this point, this person wrote a letter to this person, and this person overlooked it, et cetera. But it's just describing in sort of mechanistic terms how yeah. it happened. But As I call it, very forensic. It's a very forensic and a clinical almost. Precisely. And, and, and to be clear, there's a time and a place for that. And I think we need to understand the how. But the even deeper question, which the report does not attempt to answer, is the why. And that's where I think your analysis really hits the mark, because it tries to answer the why on a very deep level. And that that why is de facto atheism. And if it it's is okay, the de facto atheism. And, yeah. and if, if it's OK, I'd like to read just a, it's kind of a long excerpt, but it, it captures, I think, yeah. the gist of your argument. In a very oh, good way. I, I always like hearing myself quoted. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. I'm going to read a rather long excerpt from Dr. Chap's blog article, and then uh, Dr. Chap, I got some questions for you based on this. Sure. So let me go ahead and start here a, a few paragraphs in. Because if we know one thing for certain after the re- revelations of massive priestly sexual abuse and its cover up, it is that this is not a problem peculiar to either liberals or conservatives, and it cuts across the ideological spectrum like a hot searing scalpel that lacerates to the bone. Nor is it reducible to the inaction of a single pope or popes who failed to, quote, govern the church with due diligence. Nor is this an issue that is largely a matter of, quote, bad policies that can be fixed with, quote, charters and absurd, quote, virtus training programs for laypeople who, for crying out loud, are not the core of the problem. In fact, the presence of virtus training programs is actually a symptom of the problem insofar as it represents nothing more than a nod to the lawyers and insurance companies. It is also a cynical exercise in deflection. Cynical because they don't really think it will work, nor do I think that they care if it does or does not, and deflection because it is merely an attempt to foster the illusion that something is being done. My claim is actually more shocking. Some would even say dark. My claim is that the concrete actions taken with regard to McCarrick in particular, and the entire sexual abuse issue in general, tell us that many, parentheses most, of our priests and bishops are de facto atheists. They may overtly give public statements of faith, perform the sacraments, kneel dutifully before the blessed sacrament, bless boats and homes and pets, all the while being men without chests, as C.S. Lewis puts it. I would further add the following. Most lay people in the American church today are also de facto atheists, who therefore swim in the same cultural soup of cultivated spiritual mediocrity. Isn't all of this rather judgmental, you might ask? Well, perhaps. But in reality, I think it closer to the truth to say that this claim of mine represents not a judgmental finger-wagging at those others whose faith does not rise to the purity of my own, but rather represents an extrapolation from my own de facto atheism. I sense it in others connaturally, since I have already experienced it in my own attenuated modern soul. Ours is not an age of faith. Our cultural horizon rarely stretches further than the local vape shop and focuses our attention almost exclusively on the pursuit of worldly ends. And many of those worldly ends are perfectly fine, but our cultural tendency is to stop there. Like the old Irishman I once met at a pub in Galway who marked his whiskey bottle with his ring in order to remind himself, as he put it, to drink thus far and no further. And just as with his pursuit of sobriety, our stopping short at perfectly legitimate worldly ends without ever pressing further into the deep waters of supernatural faith is our Lockean hangover, wherein we deem such deeper pursuits to be fraught with the dangers of an, of an inebriated fanaticism that is best nipped in the bud. Nor am I talking here about something akin to Newman's distinction between notional and real ascent, because my claim is that even our notional ascent is deeply lacking even notional levels of conviction and is riddled with the kinds of doubts that paralyze any growth in the spiritual life, and which lead, as Augusto del Noche points out, to the accommodating compromises we have all made with our bourgeois culture of well-being. And as del Noche further notes, at the core of our culture today, a culture that affects and afflicts believers as well in almost equal measure to the non-believers, 
is a nihilistic soul, the likes of which the world has never seen before. We live in an era of metaphysical negation, which is marked by a degraded reductionistic naturalism that considers all previous ages to our own to have been mere infantile and adolescent stages of intellectual growth, but which we have now surpassed as we have moved into the adulthood of science and secular atheism. And I'll stop the excerpt there. Again, it was a pretty long excerpt, but I just love all of that that you packed in there, Dr. Chap. So thanks for writing this, first of all. And there's, there's a lot to unpack in here, but let's first talk about the de facto atheism point. So can you say more about what you mean by de facto atheism? Well, it's a kind of practical atheism. And, and it, there, there's a sense in which I have, I've gotten over the past 50, 60 years of, of my life that this is something that afflicts all of us. Uh, you know, you, we're all children of our age. We're all children of our culture. And we cannot ever completely overcome our culture and our cultural conditioning. And so I think that the, the key phrase in that entire excerpt you read there is that very short thing that says, ours is not an age of faith. Yes. We, we, didn't, we do not live in an age of, we live in an age of atheism, an age where God doesn't matter at best. And at worst, God is a dangerous concept that needs to be antiseptically removed from the public square. And to say, as I say in other parts of the post, that this doesn't affect those of us in the church is simply wrong. I mean, it's nonsense. It's, it makes no sociological or psychological sense. And so we have to be, therefore, very self-aware. This is what Vatican II says about reading the signs of the times. And the signs of the times is we live in an age of unbelief. And so we need to be very aware of this in ourselves and double down on our spiritual lives, double down on our ascetical lives. It's one of the reasons why I decided to do the Catholic Worker Farm. It's because I sensed all of this percolating in myself and knew that there is no stasis. There is no standing still. You're either trending upward towards the Amor Dei, or you're trending downwards towards the libido dominandi, towards staring at your gut or your veins or your crotch. I mean, that is that is the spiritual life, up or down. And there's no stasis, and that's one of the reasons why we went to, to the Catholic worker farm. But as I read it, most clerics in the Catholic Church, including bishops, live in that stasis. They live in that culture of bourgeois comfort. One of the most non-ascetical lives I've ever lived was when I was a seminarian. Wow. It, it, it's just, it, asceticism is about the furthest thing from their minds. And not that asceticism is the be-all and end-all of every spiritual life, but I think you get my point. There's no deep prayer life in most of these men. There's no deep piety in most of these men. There is no deep asceticism in most of these men. And so they drift. They drift with a sort of bourgeois mentality of comfort, which creates within them, whether they explicitly realize it or not, a lack of faith. These are faithless men. They are unbelievers. Because if you really push them to the wall and, and get them to be honest somehow, I, I, I would think that most of them would have to be admit, yeah, I really am not certain I believe any of this stuff. And actually, this is not actually my idea. I got this idea. Well, it was sort of my idea. It was percolating in my head, but it was made clearer to me by one of my former seminary classmates, a man who is now a priest, brilliant man, great man, holy man. And he called me one day and said how deep he was a bit depressed and down in the dumps. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, because I I just went to a priest event here. And he says, I hate those things. And I, and I said, why? He goes, because nobody believes anything. Wow. And I said, you're kidding. He goes, no. He goes, I would say, he said, 75% of them are practical atheists. The faith means nothing to them, nothing. It's, they have dead souls. So, you know, you come up with a lot of synonyms or other ways of phrasing this de facto atheism, dead souls, faithlessness, uh, spiritual acedia, whatever you want to call it. But the upshot of it is, is that there's no supernatural faith there. There might be a kind of psychological conviction, but there's no supernatural faith. And that is a very harsh thing to say, I know, but I base it on empirical experience and observation. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's harsh, but the thing is, it's also true, right? Or at least yes, our evidence bears that out. It is true. Well, and as I say at the end of the blog, okay, what further evidence do you need of faithlessness? Let's go back to the McCarrick report and the sexual abuse. Raping children is a sin. 
a grave sin, a horrible sin, and therefore covering up and aiding and abetting those who rape children is a grave and horrible and heinous sin. Therefore, given its gravamen, I would argue that anybody that would engage in either one of those things, sexually abusing children or covering up the sexual abuse of children, have to be faithless men because those are not the acts of men with faith. People with faith don't act that way. You you know, uh, you might make a little, you know, I'm not saying people with faith never sin, uh, but I will make the argument that people who have genuine supernatural faith don't rape children. And and I and I stand by that claim. I shared your blog post with my pastor and had a brief conversation with him about it. And he said that it reminded him of Benedict's idea of practical atheism. Um, yes, and I did, yes. did a little bit of reading on that as well. Um, so this was an idea that Benedict talked about quite a bit, actually, but very saliently in a short general audience that he delivered on uh, November 14th of 2012. So almost exactly eight years ago. And uh, I'll just read a little excerpt here because I think it, it drives home kind of the same kind of atheism that you're talking about, Dr. Chap. He says, right. a particularly dangerous phenomenon for faith has arisen in our times. Indeed, a form of atheism exists, which we define precisely as practical, in which the truth of faith or religious rights are not denied, but are merely deemed irrelevant to daily life, detached from life, pointless. So it is that people often believe in God in a superficial manner and live as though God did not exist. Bingo. In the end, however, this way of life proves even more destructive because it leads to indifference to faith and to the question of God. And as I'm reading this and as I'm reading your blog post, I'm thinking about, you know, we've in the church, uh, we've been reading through the book of Revelation as we approach the end of the liturgical year. And there is the warning to the lukewarm church, right? Oh, yeah. You better not be lukewarm. And that's how I kind of think of this de facto or this practical atheism, right? Because it's not as if these priests and cardinals would be willing to uh, to go on, you know, a show alongside Richard Dawkins and advocate for the non-existence of God. It's that they are, right, right. are, are pretending as if they stake their claim on the existence of God. And instead, it really doesn't matter to them at all. It's really just a matter of indifference. It, which is the same thing as as practical atheism, right? And that is the lukewarmness that I think is so devastating and that really enables all of these horrible things to take place. Oh, uh, that's absolutely true. I love that stuff from, from Benedict Joseph Ratzinger. In fact, when I was reading today the Ratzinger Report, uh, which I read years ago, and I went back and reread it today, him he says right in there in his discussion of the post-conciliar silly season, he, he says explicitly, all of the nonsense that happened after the council was caused by a lack of faith. Wow. Yeah. Faithlessness. Faithlessness. I think he sees a great spiritual desert that has sort of overcome the church. I think this too is what Paul VI was kind of hinting at when he talked about how the smoke of Satan, that famous quote from his, yes. that the smoke of Satan has entered the church. I think what he meant was the smoke of a kind of practical atheism, a spiritual indifference, acting as if God doesn't matter. I mean, I'm, I lived in, I did a study abroad thing with my students from DeSales in Rome uh, for a while. And uh, I, I, I know people there in, in Rome and one of the things that really struck me was that they would they would go to like nightclubs in Rome these people and they would tell me how many priests were there and and you know gay priests straight priests you know trying to hook up and have sex for the night doing drugs uh drinking too much and that these were priests who worked in the Vatican uh, so, you know, Benedict lived in the Vatican, both as prefect and then as pope. And I, I, I think that there is a, there's a great deal of corruption in high places. And that accounts for McCarrick's rise as well. And, and it really can't be ignored uh, that, that, you know, they look out for their own. Yeah, absolutely. You know, another, another thing that I find troubling about the, all of these sexual abuse uh, scandals, you know, Sally and I, my wife, um, just watched Spotlight, the the movie about. Oh, the oh my goodness! Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, just really, really harrowing stuff. Um, and you know, the filmmakers really kind of enjoyed watching that movie because it's it's pleasurable when you get to point out the hypocrisy of people of professed faith, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But from the same at the same time, you know, and you point this out in the article as well. This is sort of these events and these 
repeated over and over and over again incidents become a sort of Rorschach test, right? Just like they those do. um those those psychological tests where you look at that and whether or not you see a butterfly or a skull is supposed to say something about your psyche, right? So it's it's kind of like that because <laughs> you know it's either it's either oh this is of course this has been enabled by you know Pope John Paul II who really shouldn't be a saint yada yada or it's ah uh, yes this of course confirms the lavender mafia which is all all just a massive problem and that's really the right, really right, what's going right. on here right so it's it's a, a Rorschach test in that way but as you point out this cuts across ideological lines and is the only thing uh, the, the only thing that it can can account for that is if we are dealing with a complete abject crisis of faith you know, absolutely. And it really angers me, too. I have to admit, on both sides of that equation. First off, as I say in the blog, John Paul II, in many ways, dropped the ball here. Yes, he was deceived by McCarrick. McCarrick was a great liar and manipulator, as was Maciel and so on. Yes. So I'm not saying that John Paul didn't care about sexual abuse. And he was getting elderly and sick and so on. But John Paul, by his own admission, was not a great governor of the church. He was not a great administrator of the church and things happen Same with benedict yeah and, and things happen under his watch that should not have happened under any pope's watch and so i am disappointed but nevertheless i hate the fact that like the national catholic reporter and stuff are using this as a wedge an ideological wedge they're cynical they don't really care about the issue they just want to discredit john paul so they can discredit his entire pontificate his entire teaching and they can get on with the merrymaking of the silly season again all right and that really annoys me because it is so cynical and it's destructive all right john paul was a great great pope and he will and he is a saint and i i he's still a hero of mine despite this so that anger but also then on the right the lavender mafia stuff and and all that and i said a while ago they look after their own and that's that's all true, all right? And so there is an element of truth to the Lavender Mafia, and there's an element of truth that John Paul dropped the ball here. But both sides of that equation are really just using it as an ideological tool. Right. And, and they, they miss the point. And I, I want to say to this, too, with regard to the Lavender Mafia and gay priests and so on, I do not believe that any man who has deep, deep, deep-seated homosexual tendencies should be a priest uh, who identifies as gay and all that kind of stuff. Nevertheless, I have known many, many priests who were afflicted with same-sex attraction, but who nevertheless dealt with it beautifully and have become wonderful priests, excellent priests. Uh, and so I, I, I'm a little I, – sometimes I wonder if there isn't a little bit of a right-wing edge and vendetta, you know, that has a certain homophobic kind of – edge to it that that I'm not entirely comfortable with either. So in other words, it gets tied up in the culture wars, and this is a great, great mistake. And uh, I, that's why I think we have to go back to the source of what is the issue here, and the issue is a practical atheism. Yeah, so now that we've identified the issue, I mean, what do you think is the way out of that? We've talked about some of the causes of that. I think this practical atheism rises from a modern mindset in which we view everything, like you say in your piece, everything that came before us was just kind of the infantile and adolescent stages of human development. But now, now we're enlightened creatures and we recognize capital S science as our only God, et cetera, right? And so we, yeah. we've totally transcended the need for a deity in our lives, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of the cause of it. We, we've talked about the fruits. The fruits are that uh, the church is uh, run in many cases by bishops and priests who are serial sexual abusers. And that damages all of the victims, most especially, but also the entire church by extension. Uh, so that's the fruits of that faithlessness. And I mean, there are other fruits as well, right? That's just yeah. maybe one of the most serious and obvious fruits. Um, but what's what's the remedy? I mean, how do we get out of this? I, I often wonder, right? You, you talked about um, in sort of a uh, a mocking way, and I totally agree with you, these sort of virtus training programs, right? I mean, it's amazing oh, that geez. it's amazing yeah. that uh, bishops and priests can do such horrible things and then say, guys, we, we figured it out before lay people work with children. You're going to have to take these training programs, right? Have um, you taken those? Have you been in one of those? Programs? I sure have. Yeah, multiple. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. They're yeah. just absurd. Yeah, and it, it's totally it's a total nod to the lawyers, right? It's a liability issue, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And so, yeah. um, but it's it's just it's it's crazy that that is sort of one of the apparent solutions, right? But we spend so much time kind of hand wringing and worrying about liability, et cetera. And you know, I think the the answer the answer for how to return to faith is to cultivate faith, right? But what if the answer is just as simple as Pray more every day, 
go to mass, receive the sacraments, et cetera. That is our only yeah. return to faith. That's, that is the ultimate answer right there. And it might seem trite and cliche, but Benedict nailed it before. And John Paul said the same thing. Holiness is the only true reform. And, you know, we might be Athanasius contra mundum. We might be the only last man standing or last woman standing, you know, uh, or Elijah, I alone remain. But we have to be just deeply, deeply faithful. But, but then that's the root. That's the ultimate answer. But then that answer leads to a multifocal uh, missional approach. By missional, I mean each one of us has a different mission in life given by God. And I mean, you're doing something with your podcast. I'm doing something with my blog. You know, we can all do little tiny things like that. And the Catholic world, as you all know, is actually, believe it or not, a small world. And, uh, you know, little things like my blog or your podcast, they, they go viral amongst a certain group of Catholics. And we need that to support each other. I'm assuming you're familiar with Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, looking at on my bookshelf right now. Yeah. Well, and I know Rod and so on. And, and, and I, I have certain issues with Rod Dreher, uh, but I think essentially he's correct that in order to survive the coming tsunami uh, in our culture and in our church, we simply have to develop strong communities, uh, whether it's a community within a bigger community or, or something along those lines, we have to have a strong self-identity. It begins with faith and prayer, a healthy asceticism that isn't crazy, but also good liturgy, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're here at this ordinary at Parish, because we have found a beautiful liturgy and a vibrant faith community of intentional believers that support each other. In fact, my wife teaches, they have a homeschooling co-op at this Anglican Ordinariate Parish, and my wife teaches in it, and uh, it's just magnificent to see the faith being transmitted to these kids in this co-op. That's what we have to do in little tiny pockets here and there, and uh, the church, and plus trust in the Holy Spirit, the church will survive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've talked with friends before. I tend to be a rather anxious person in general, and I've always been kind of a long-term thinker, and it's sometimes hard to not get anxious about the future of the church, right? Uh, but then well, you remember, yeah, the gates yeah. of hell will not prevail against it. And I always yeah. I always appreciate that image from Scripture because the it, it's hell that has gates, right? It's not heaven that has gates, which means it's, oh, yeah. it's the church that is the church militant. The church is advancing upon hell. and it's, it's, I am so <laughs> glad you said that. Father Bergman here at the Ordinariate Parish once gave, I, that had never crossed my mind, and he gave a sermon one day. You former Anglicans have got it going here. <laughs> because he said, it's gates, the hell that has the gates, and we're right. supposed to be storming the gates exactly, of hell. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and we're not, and that's the problem. We need to be storming the gates of hell. I mean, you know, not, not crazy, but, you know, and uh, that, that's absolutely got to get done uh, in, a, in, a more, in a more militant way. But I, I really think I have to just good, – good liturgy, I think, too, is just so darned important. Um, and I think Benedict felt the same way. So not to uh, not to pick on Rod Dreher too much. I mean, I, I appreciate what you said. I appreciate a lot of Rod's work. Um, I mean, one yeah. one issue that I have with Rod is that he left the Catholic Church uh, in large part oh, yeah. due to the abuse scandals. And that, I think, cannot be the answer for Catholics. Again, not to pick on Rod specifically here, but it can be tempting. It can be hard to be in the church and see this going on. And I think, you know, you mentioned the sort of Amish trad community um, at, yeah. at one Latin mass parish near you. And I think... That in itself is really a kind of return to faith, but I think sometimes it can tend towards um, towards the fanaticism that I've seen on sort of you know certain parts of Catholic Twitter that women have to wear the veil to mass, et cetera, and you have to go to a Latin mass. Oh or, yeah, it's, right. it's it's insular, and and it's it's you know it's more of an art than a science to pull off having strong uh, communities with a powerful Catholic identity that's internally cohesive right. and all on the same page and at the same time not be insular. Yeah, so that that's that's exactly where I'm going with this Dr. Chap because I mean as a final question, you know, I, my question to you is we've talked about some of these things that the church can do practically, but what does that look like for my listeners, right? I mean, I am I think I'm like many of my listeners. I have a young family, right? My oldest daughter is 6 years old. Um, they're growing up. So my wife and I are thinking about what is the, le what is the next 
15 to 25 years look for our look like for our family? How can we how can we raise them in the church well? And I think a lot of people are asking those types of questions. I personally am optimistic about the future of the, the church globally because I think I have to be, but specifically in America as well because I see a lot of young people who are asking those questions correctly, but we have to walk this line between walking away like someone who just gets yeah. frustrated at the abuse crisis and decides this is not the true church and someone who, right. who just kind of doubles down and says, you know what? The true church only existed prior to Vatican II, essentially. Right. And you become almost like a crypto seat of a cantist, right? That's not, that's not the answer either. So how, yeah. do, how do, how do we walk that line practically? Well, I, I think that the, the, the first off it's, it's a line that a lot of us uh, will not cross uh, because we work in the world. And the world just keeps us sort of centered and sane because we have to go out and deal with people who don't think like us sort of on a daily basis. And we have to be kind to them and, and all those sorts of things. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's, it's all that hard to avoid being uh, all that insular. The, the worst thing, when, sometimes too, when I say insular, is that a community can become very inbred spiritually, which leads to what I consider one of the greatest sins of these little strong communities, gossip, backstabbing, yeah. uh, uh, rumor mongering, these sorts of things. That that bothers me a great deal in some of these communities. But I really think that the, the, the bottom line, in order to avoid insularity, is you have to have a prayer life that keeps you focused outside of yourself. On the other, because if you actually care about other people and are concerned about other people, you're not going to become insular because you're going to find yourself going out, going out to those in need. And that's 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 a huge thing, because one of the one of the symptoms of an insular spirituality is an, an exaggerated introspection, an exaggerated interiority, an exaggerated fixation on the self, you know, so that you actually are working against the, the spiritual growth that needs to happen. Well, and might I suggest to my listeners, maybe Advent is a great time to try to adapt one or two, adopt one of the, one or two of those things, you know, take on a new discipline for your prayer life or find or, and right. or find a way to go out into the world and serve your neighbor. I mean, this is a, to go back to St. John Paul II, who we talked about on this podcast already, uh, that's what he that's what he meant when he uh, when he declared the new evangelization and and called us to yeah. cast out into the deep. It's why my podcast catchphrase is "podcast into the deep," <laughs> because the idea is yeah. to is to go out there. We have to be missional. We have to think about how we're going to advance the gospel. We are the church that is advancing upon the gates of hell. Well, I would I would recommend highly because just personally, it's it's very useful to me. Lexio Divina. Uh, I I love simply opening the Gospels in particular and praying the Scriptures. It refamiliarizes you with the Gospels, but it's also a perfect way to develop a prayer life that does what I just said about going out of yourself, you know, not constantly looking internally. It's a very Ignatian and Jesuit sort of thing to do as well, uh, to meditate on the Gospels and to read the Gospels and think deeply upon them. But then the, the next thing, too, is I, I, I think it's very, very, very important for people to try and find parishes within dry, comfortable driving distance of where they live, where they feel like there's a faith life. Uh, because you do need other people in this endeavor. You can't do this by yourself. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, I think I think it's one people often think I can go fulfill my Sunday obligation at this mass that's close and it's not great. The music's pretty terrible. I don't feel my soul lifted to God. The homily is not particularly yeah. encouraging, but it's, it's a get it over with mass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think that's that can be a troublesome thing. I mean, I, I would say, you know, something that my wife and I did actually when we were looking for a house when we moved a year and a half ago is we looked first for parishes and said, where do we want to be close to parishes? And we called up some parishes and talked to the pastors to kind of get a pulse on what the prayer life and liturgical life was like at that church and how yeah. good it was for families, et cetera. I think that's another good thing to do if you find yourself in a position where you're, you're about to move or contemplating. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Yeah. Like we were talking, my wife and I, the other day about selling our farm and buying a different farm uh, because we would like maybe something that has a little better land, not quite as rocky, not quite as hilly and so on. Uh, but we had one stipulation. It has to remain within driving distance of the ordinary at parish. There you go. Yeah. Because that is the most important thing in our life right now is that parish. And I think people need to st people need to ask themselves the question, is my parish the center of my life? Is it the center of my spiritual life and, 
and therefore the center of my life? Or is it simply, well, it's close and I can get mass out of the way, kind of a parish. And uh, that that's a difficult kind of thing to negotiate often. Yeah, it really is. But great exhortation. Thank you for that. And really, thank you for your time today, Dr. Chap. I've got one more question for you. I know we're, sure. we're running a little longer than I, I told you we would, but uh, I, I try to ask my guests as a final question on the podcast when I remember uh, is what, what, what's a saint that's on your mind these days? What's one of your favorite saints? I mean, as we think about the church militant and of course the church triumphant already in heaven, it's always useful to nurture our faith. Remember these men and women of faith who have gone before us. So is there a saint that you'd like to tell my listeners about today? St. Charles Borromeo, uh, because he was a champion of reform, but reform that was rooted in the past with an eye towards the future. And I mean, I would really recommend people look into Borromeo. He is an astounding man, in many ways, uh, a modern man, uh, and, and both mystic, but also a, a very practical guy. And just right now, when we're trying to negotiate how do you institute the reforms of the Second Vatican Council without going crazy right-wing, left-wing, but have it be a true reform? I can think of no better guide than St. Charles Borromeo. Great exhortation. Thank you for that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great call-out, especially for these times, these saints who lived through periods where they really needed to reform the church, a great saints for us to look at as role models. Well, thank you, Dr. Chap. Really appreciate the time today. Uh, thank you for your work in the church. Thank you for your work on your on your farm in Pennsylvania. Thank you for your great writing. Uh, again, to my listeners, I'm going to link to that blog to, blog post that I mentioned and to Dr. Chap's blog, gaudium at space22.com, uh, so you can read more uh, for yourself there if you'd like. I'll also commend to my listeners a about an hour-long podcast called, um, or I, I don't know what the title of the actual episode was, but it's from the the Catholic News Agency's Editor's Desk podcast. Um, so the editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and his D.C. bureau chief, Ed Condon. Oh, yeah. Talk about the McCarrick Report. And those guys are really, really solid theologically and talk through some of the, the problems with it and some of the kind of follow-on events. So if you're more interested in the report itself, I'd, I highly recommend that podcast to you. If you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Chap, please send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. I'd be happy to put you in touch with Dr. Chap and, and you can feel free to ask him questions or pick his brain on things. Uh, and Dr. Chap, I'd love to have you on uh, another episode. Open invitation hey, to come anytime, back. anytime. Maybe talk about some Second Vatican Council things. So I think there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, maybe, you know, in relation to the sort of divergent uh, divergent strands that it's created in American Catholicism and how well, we can... Well, my next blog post is on the hermeneutic of continuity, so that'd be perfect. Okay, well, let's do that. Yeah, I'd love to have you back on. So thank you, thank you so much for your time. Have a blessed Advent, and I'll talk to you again soon. You too, Zach. Thank you. And to my listeners, God bless you. Thank you.